Good morning. Um, about, well, I guess the middle of January, our family moved to a new house. It's a, it's a great house. I like it a lot. I still thank God for it every day. But it's a, uh, an older house, and it's got quite a few mysteries about it, things that we've never been able to quite figure out. One of the uh, biggest mysteries is that we have a vault in our basement. And we're talking a real vault. This thing is, is about a 12 by 12 foot room with a solid steel 6 foot door with wheels on it and the things that come out and everything. I mean, it's a real vault in our basement. And uh, we have spent a lot of time trying to figure out why we have a vault in our basement. And what it was there for. Why it was ever, ever put there come up with a lot of speculation. We, one idea was that uh, the owner of the house must have been a uh, an antique seller, and he kept all his precious and valuable antiques down in this big, huge vault. Another idea that we had was that this was a fancy shelter in case the Soviets started lobbing the big ones, and they'd run in and spin the dial, I guess, and lock himself in. But uh, about, oh, two months ago, the uh, guy that built the house or that lived in the house and put the vault down there came and visited us and uh, explained things to us and it put all of our speculations all of our games of forcing any visitor to come that came over to hazard a guess at where the vault came from all of that ended because he told us where it came from and what it was doing there the uh, simple fact of the matter unfortunately (laughs) is just that he saw this vault sitting on a loading dock and he said hey that would be neat to have in my basement and he dragged it and stuck it in his basement comes actually out of the bank up in Donnelly. When they tore the bank down, it was sitting there. So that's all there is to it. That's all the vault. You know, it kind of was a little bit uh, anticlimactic. One of the other mysteries that he solved for us was that there, there are shelves all over this house. Um, even as you go down these stairs to the, to the basement, there's a retractable ladder that you can use to climb up. So you can reach the, the shelves at the very ceiling all the way from the bottom of the stairs. And uh, again, we had all kinds of theories of what these shells were for. We thought it was for several years' supply of food. And this kind of dovetailed nicely with the survivalist theory of the uh, vault. But again, when he came and visited, he put all our speculation to rest. He said, no, I, he collected books. He had books all over the house, thousands of volumes. Some of them very precious and valuable volumes. We even have um, the remnants. And I think it would still work if I had any clue how to use it. But the remnants of an alarm system in the house. Um, if you're a thief, it works fine. But uh, <laughs> the reason for this system was because he had some very valuable books. Well, the, the point of this illustration is to demonstrate two things about the psalm we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at Psalm 19 this morning. The two things that, that uh, this illustrates is, first of all, that as fun and as interesting a, an intellectual exercise speculation may be, if you really want to know why something is there, ask the person who put it there. And if you really know, want to know what it's for, ask the person who built it. And then all the speculation gets uh, put aside and you know, you know what it's there for. The uh, second thing that I was illustrating, uh, kind of, was uh, the value of books. Uh, you may not realize it, but two of the most precious things in your possession are books. The knowledge of God has, as, as Ray Stedman uh, says, the knowledge of God has been written for us in two volumes, 
And it takes both volumes to know God. Volume 1 is the book of nature. Volume 2 is the written word. So let's look at uh, Psalms 19. The first six verses talk about book number 1, volume 1, the, the book of nature. David writes, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. In the first two verses, David says that the the, the heavens are telling us about God's glory. The, the, The expanse is literally shouting to us about God's handiwork. The term he uses for expanse there... Uh, literally, a very wooden translation would be the stretched outness shouts about God's handiwork. You see, well, when David looks up at the sky, what, what impresses him, what overwhelms him, is just the, the immensity of it, the vastness of it, the enormity of it all. He just finds it, it overwhelming. And it, it, to him, it's telling him something about the enormity, the vastness how awesome his God is. You know, when was the last time you just sat out and looked at the stars? Just looked at them. Just thought about how far away those things are, how big those things are. You know, scientists tell us that the uh, closest stars, the ones that we can see with our, our naked eyes, are about within 10 light years away, which doesn't sound too far Till you realize that a light year is the distance light travels in a year. Light travels at the speed of 186,282 miles a second. That's moving. <laughs> That's jogging real hard. And then to find out how fast, how far it goes in a year, you multiply that by 60 for a minute, that by 60 for an hour, and then times 24, all of that for a day, and then multiply all of that by 365, and you've got a light year comes out to about 6 trillion miles, give or take a few yards. That's a long ways. And those stars that we're looking at are somewhere between 50 and 60 trillion miles. See, and God put them all out there and spaced them the way He wanted them and judged the distance. And, you know, these... Sixty trillion miles, that's a, that is an incomprehensible number. We might as well be talking about bazillions of miles. It doesn't make any sense to me. But you don't need to be a scientist to, to feel and to see the enormity, the wonder of the sky. Just go out sometime and look, marvel at the awesome Creator of all of that. What the vastness and the enormity of the sky shouts to us is the immensity of of our Creator, of their Creator. Stuart Briscoe maintains, and this is a quote, the revelation of God's immensity is one of the most necessary things for our world at this time. For one thing, when people begin to realize that God is the God of heavens, they may think twice 
about trying to twist him around their little fingers. They may, on the other hand, begin to feel a little more confident about the world's situation. If they get a glimpse of him as revealed in the immense heavens. See, what he's saying is that if we realize just how big this God is with whom we have to do, just how enormous, how powerful, we start to realize how badly he could hurt us if he had a mind to. But then at the same time, we're exposed to the fact that he is our refuge. He loves us, and we find comfort and security and warmth there. And it's not just the night sky. David said, day by day pours forth speech. You know, look at the sun or look at the clouds. When I was a student at the University of California down in Santa Barbara, I had an apartment right on the beach, which obviously uh, didn't get a whole lot of studying done. But uh, what I, we had a, a couch sitting out on the cliff. The water came up to the cliff, and the apartment was on the top of the cliffs. And right in front of the apartment, we had a couch just sitting in the ice plant uh, on the edge of the cliff. And I'd go out there to have quiet times, just times alone with the Lord. And I'd watch those clouds come rolling in off of the ocean, storms coming in off the ocean, and just be overwhelmed by their power and just their enormity, by the intricacy of their shapes. Just, just marveling at the God who designed these things, who planned it so it would work out that way. Now again, God's glory is being shouted at us by the, by the expanse, by the heavens. He's telling us things about himself. Again, when was the last time you stopped and looked? Let me give you an assignment today. <clears throat> Sometime today, take 15 minutes and lay down on a lawn somewhere and look at the sky. If there are any clouds, I don't know if there will be any out today. Or maybe tonight, wait till it gets dark, if you can stay up that late. Lay out on the lawn and just look at those stars. And let their enormity, let their immenseness just wash over you and remind you of how enormous, how immense, how powerful and wise the God is who created them. The God is who is your God. Now look at verses 3 and 4. They seem to be contradicting themselves. He says, There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. Now he says, first of all, there's no speech, there's no voice, but their utterance goes to the end of the world. What he's saying is that that the message is going out, but it's not in, in, in verbal language. It's not in words. It's not in a huge neon sign in the sky. Sometimes I've wondered why God didn't just stick a huge neon sign in the sky. That seems like that would be convincing. I mean, if he put this big sign up there, everybody would have to say, oh, there is a God. He stuck this sign up there. Then I got to thinking about it. If he stuck this sign up there, what language would he write it in? If he was fair, he'd have to write it in Chinese. I couldn't read it. And what about the, the Indian in the jungles of Suriname? He'd have no idea what this monstrosity was. He'd end up falling down and worshiping it. Now, you see, it wouldn't do any good. I think uh, the scientists of our day would use that as incontrovertible proof that we have been visited by aliens from another planet. And there it is. There's that proof out there. If they're not going to listen to the signs that God has put out there, far more, uh, more grand far more subtle, far more beautiful than any stupid neon sign, they're not going to listen to a neon sign. 
You see, the signs that God has put up there are there to be read by people of any language. And people who can't read at all can still read these signs. There's no words, but the message is loud and clear. God is great. God is wise. God is powerful. God is beautiful. You see, this message is just as available in the jungles of New Guinea or the interior of Mongolia as it is in Boise, Idaho. But people don't hear it. People don't see it. The knowledge of God is pouring in and people do not hear. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush aflame with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. See, and that's the reality of it. We just walk through all of this, this beauty, all of this testimony to the glory of God, and we just walk through without being aware of what we're seeing and what it all means. See, not only do people fail to receive the message and understand the message, what they end up doing is worshiping the book. Rather than reading what it says and who it's talking about, they leave it closed and they worship the book. Every civilization from the ancient Greeks to to the Akas in, in Ecuador have worshiped the creation. They've refused to acknowledge God and as a result have ended up worshiping the creature. Listen to Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies may be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You know, we may think that our culture is different. We don't worship creation, but we do. And we, we've named our goddess nature. And we marvel at the great and wonderful things that she has done, the subtlety she has created and the beauty she has created. You see, you can't watch you know, a, a documentary on Channel 4 about animals or about physics or about geology without the narrator being forced to say, isn't this fantastic? What nature has done. The way nature has worked this out so beautifully, so carefully. You see, she is the blind, careless, amoral goddess of 20th century America. And even though she is absolutely blind, even though she is clumsy, even though she's ignorant, she creates works of absolute beauty and subtlety and intricacy that we can't even fathom. Now, there's a contradiction there. There's something missing there. Historically, the sun is the most common item of creation to be worshipped. All the cultures around David at the time he wrote this worshipped the sun. The Egyptians did, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the the Babylonians. They all worshipped the sun. But David says, God made the sun and gave it a place to run. 
He describes it as a, as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, all decked in the, in the family splendor, and the clothes that, that are showing off the glory of his family. But realize, those aren't his clothes. Those are the clothes his father gave him to display the family's splendor. He says he's like a strong man, delighting to run his course. This strong man is the servant of God who has been sent on an errand by God. And he's running the course that God has set for it. That he is, <clears throat> excuse me, that he is dispensing the life-giving heat that God assigned for it. The beauty, the, the power, the glory of the sun speaks only of the beauty and the power and the glory of its creator. That's the point David wants us to see. Well, even though many refuse to receive its teaching, the book of creation, volume one, tells us a lot about God, about what he's like about how wonderful, how great he is. But we're now going to take a look at Volume 2, without which Volume 1, the message of Volume 1, would be lost on all of us. Volume 2 is the, the written word, the verbal word, the scriptures. Volume 1 is a great treasure. The creation is a wonderful, beautiful, mind-boggling, breathtaking treasure. But as often as we fail to recognize just what a treasure it is as we walk blindly and uncaring and unappreciatively on our way to work or, or running errands? How much more do we fail to realize the enormous treasure that we have in Volume 2? As valuable as Volume 1 is, the creation is, it pales in significance compared to what we have in the written Word. <clears throat> I've heard more than one person Say, well, I can worship God much better on a mountainside or, or in a stream, on a golf course, than I can in a church. Well, the question that uh, I have to ask is, is, do you? When you're out there, do you really worship God? Or do you just blindly keep going after that deer? Or, or uh, with deaf ears, keep baiting that hook? Or dumbly follow that little white ball all over the countryside? Or do you follow the sunbeam back up to the sun and then take the next step and worship the creator of that kind of beauty, that kind of wonder? You know, there's nothing special about being cooped up in a building on Sunday morning or Sunday night or any other day of the week. But hopefully what's going on in that building is that the scriptures are being explored. The Bible is being taught. You see, often our claims to worship God better in creation are just a means to avoid the message of His greater book, the Scriptures. Again, Volume 1 tells us what God has done. Volume 2 tells us why. Tells us what his, his, his desires are, what His feelings are, what He wants, what He plans. Volume 1 tells us what God is like. We look at the creation and we see things about God. Volume 2 lets us into His heart so that we can really know Him, so that we can have a relationship with Him. Volume 1 tells us just what a wonderful God we serve. But again, without Volume 2, we would be left floundering in our speculation Sometimes that speculation is, is ingenious. More often it's rather silly. 
But that's all we would have. We'd never know what it was really for, what it really means, what his plans were. Volume 1 touches our senses, touches us outside. Volume 2 touches us inside, and that's where the quality of our lives are determined. Now look at verse 7. David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. See, law refers to all of the scriptures. He says it's perfect, it's complete, it's comprehensive. It's all that you need. For what? For restoring your soul. For putting your insides back together. See, it's not a quick fix. It's not a pill that you can take and be well in the morning. But the truths that are in Scripture are exactly what you need. They'll renew your mind as as you submit to them in humility and dependence. They'll show you what's been going on in your life. They'll show you why the paths that you have taken have left you bruised and damaged and bleeding. And they'll show you what the good paths really are. He says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, the testimony of the Lord is sure, it's dependable, it's solid. You can sink your teeth into it. It's not like the, the, the spongy world we live in, trying to figure out what we should be doing and how we should relate and trying to stumble through. No, it's solid and it's smooth. And we can walk on it and be firm. It says it'll make wise even the simple. That makes many of us feel greatly comforted. It'll make you wise, even if you're not so smart, even if if you're not well-educated, even if your IQ is below 100. It doesn't matter how you compare to the world or anybody in it. You can be wise by learning the Scriptures. You can understand life like no mere nuclear physicist or doctor of philosophy. You can see yourself rightly. You can understand how to conduct yourself in relationships in a, in a healthy, constructive, wholesome manner, you can find the things in life that are really important. One of the things in life that we find important is being right. The next line, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. My kids can argue for hours about who's right. We all want to be right. That's the way we're built. We have a hunger to be right. And in the end, if it proves that we were right, we feel great. Our heart rejoices. Maybe we want a pizza. Our heart rejoices when we're right. But when it proves in the end that we were wrong, it feels lousy. We don't like it at all. That's why we spend so much emotional energy trying to avoid admitting that we're wrong because it feels so lousy. But that doesn't change the fact that you're wrong. It doesn't get rid of the feeling. We just cover it up. See, we don't have to be wrong. We can be right. Just give up our ideas. Submit to the Scripture. Hear what God has to say. Then we can experience the delight, the enjoyment of being truly right. It's a great treasure. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You see, life is confusing. People are are complex. Events have multiple causes. 
And it all gets mixed up. It all gets confusing. But see, God's commandments don't. They're pure. They're unmixed. They're like a, like a beam of pure laser light cutting through all of the confusion and, and, and chaos, showing us things as they really are. So God's commandments, they cut through all of our justification and rationalization and, and excuses that we pile up trying to defend when we're wrong. And, and, and it just muddies the water. And God's commands cut right through those. He says simply, don't do that. It will kill you. It doesn't matter what your reasons are. And it doesn't matter how good it feels. Don't do it. It will kill you. Or on the other hand, he says, do this and live. I understand your woundedness. I understand your fears. I understand that it feels like death. But do it and live. See, it cuts through it all. And then when we try that, when we go ahead and we listen to God and we obey Him, it all starts to make sense. Our, li- our eyes are enlightened and we see it all clearly. We understand as a result of our obedience. And we enjoy being able to see clearly. He says, the, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You know, what is, what is this fear? Are we walking around afraid that at any moment God's going to smack us upside the head? That somehow He's going to pay us back for all the rotten things we've ever done? No, that's not what He's talking about at all. But what he is saying is realize who you're dealing with. Realize you're dealing with the God of the heavens. The great creator who threw those stars into space. The one who created the sun and the earth, everything that's in it. You're dealing with a real powerful person. And let that get through to you. Jesus says, he says do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, don't be foolish. God is not to be trifled with. But at the same time, the very next thing out of Jesus' mouth there in Matthew 10 was, And are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are numbered. Therefore do not fear. You're of more value than many sparrows. You see, this great creator God also loves you. Two years ago, we uh, bought my daughter, Jessica, a kitten. Mr. Timothy George Washington Fierce is his name. She gave him that name. Well, Mr. Timothy George Washington Fierce, in order to live a healthy, good life, had to learn to fear me. I like him. I like cats. I enjoy playing with Timothy. I enjoy uh, petting him and, and to be making sure that he's warm and fed. But when he gets out of hand, when he jumps on the table and tries to eat my food, when he bites me, when he runs away into danger without stopping, he needs to learn to fear me. Otherwise, we're going to be constantly in conflict, constantly struggling for control. We're never going to be able to enjoy each other, to just rest and be together, just delight in that. That would be sad. Well, stop fighting God for control. You'll just ruin yourself and you'll lose out on all the petting He wants to give you and all the good things that He wants to do for you 
to do in you, to, to make of you. And, you. and you'll never enjoy the, the rest and the joy of just belonging to Him. You see, once we have this fear, this respect that we listen to what He says and we obey Him, that keeps us clean. That's the way David puts us. It keeps us from defiling ourselves and destroying ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. This is David's summary. It says the judgments of the Lord are true. The way God has it figured out, the way God explains it to us is exactly the way it is. They're true. They're, 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 uh, they're accurate. And then he says they're righteous altogether. I like the, the way that uh, righteous is used today by kids. They go to a movie and they say, that was a righteous movie. What they mean by that, that it was great. It was excellent. It was, it was all that they expected, all they had hoped it would be. And in a sense, that's what David is saying about the judgments of the Lord. They are righteous altogether. They're great. They're excellent. They're everything that he hoped they would be. They're right on. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and keeping them there's great reward. He says the, the, the scriptures are extremely valuable. They're more valuable than their weight in gold. When I was in junior high, I did a report on a guy by the name of Pizarro one of the conquistadores who conquered Peru, is a real sweetheart. When he came to Peru, uh, the, the emperor of all of the Incas, a guy by the name of Atahualpa, came out to greet him and welcome him in friendship. So what Pizarro did was grab the guy and stuck him in a room. Said to all the, the, the Incas, if you f- fill this room as high as your emperor can reach, and he had him reaching on the wall and drew a line that high. He said, if you fill that room that high, I'll let him go. Fill the room with gold, that is. So they gladly and quickly gave up their gold, filled their room to that mark. When Pizarro saw how easy that went, he basically... Am I off? Or can you hear me? Got too energetic for this machine, I think. Sorry. Um, when he saw how easy it was, they, he said, fill it again. And so they filled it again. And just to show what a sweetheart he really was, then he killed the guy. And he immediately became the richest man in the world. There was billions of dollars in today's value of gold in there. But where did all of that gold get him? Where is he now, 450 years later? What did all of that gold gain him? An express ticket to hell. I was uh, reading an article recently that traced the lives of the nine richest men in America during 1923. And it traced their lives. And the bottom line was out of those nine men, two went to prison, three died penniless, and three committed suicide. You see, all of their great wealth, the nine richest men in America, all of their great wealth turned bitter on them. But David says, the word of God will never sour It's sweeter than honey dripping from the honeycomb. And verse 11 again, moreover by this, ignore the warning, forfeit 
the reward and leave themselves wounded and bleeding. How can mere words do all of this great stuff for us? I mean, that's all we really have here. This is ink on paper. They're just words. And what about all the scholars who study this all the time, night and day, and they end up being as big a fools as anyone can be? How can mere words do all of this great stuff for us? Well, the bottom line is, they can't. Not even these words can give us all of these great things. See, Jesus said, in in, in talking to the Pharisees, the, the, the scholars of his day, he says, you search the scripture because you think that in them you find eternal life. But they speak of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might receive life. You see, these words don't give life. Jesus gives life. And just like we follow the sunbeam up to the sun, but we don't worship the sun. We realize that there's a creator behind that sun and we worship him. We follow these words up to our Lord and we meet him personally. See, if all you had was these words, you would have nothing. But what's behind these words is the person of our God who spoke them and caused them to be written. And as we follow them up and as we come into a relationship with Him, these words have their purpose. They draw us into that personal relationship with Him that all of these words were intended to encourage, to create a hunger for in us, and to, draw, to give us wisdom on how, how to gain. There is one thing, however that is going to keep us from benefiting from the Scripture, from creation. There's one thing that will close both of the books for us. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, Peter says, So put away all malice and guile and insecurity and envy and all slander. Then you will be like newborn babes who long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in salvation. You see, sin dulls our taste for the Word. Sin blinds us to the value. It robs the Word of its joy, of its excitement. So David, in in, in verses 12 and 13, says, God, clean me up. Get rid of all this garbage so I don't lose out on this treasure that you've given me. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. I guarantee you, you have hidden faults. I have hidden faults. We all have hidden faults. Unfortunately, they're more hidden from us than they are from the people around us. But we all have them. They, they feed on our insecurities. And distort our thinking. They, they, they rob us and ruin us. And God is anxious to clear them up. But you see, the way He deals with them is not usually just to erase them. Usually what He does is He takes us through some very difficult circumstance where we're forced to face what's inside of us because of what comes out of us. You know, we may blame our hatefulness on this person that's irritating us. Or we may blame our 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 impatience on the situation. But if we're honest, 
We have to admit that people and circumstance don't put that stuff inside of us. They just draw it out. It was already there. Another way that God exposes our hidden faults is He'll bring a brother or sister who loves us enough to tell us about them. That's never an enjoyable experience. And we almost always immediately try to cover up. We uh, end up turning on the messenger, saying, who's this guy to to throw stones? Who is she to throw stones? Or we focus on the way they did it, uh, on the words they used, or how awkwardly or abruptly or harshly they may have said it, rather than than, than rejoicing in the fact that, that a cancer has been exposed and that God is delighted to remove it, to take it out, to free us from the confusion and the damage that it's doing in our lives, to to heal those insecurities and those wounds that are producing these in our lives. Psalm 32, David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, through groaning all day long. For night and day thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But when I acknowledged my sin to thee and my iniquity I did not hide, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. And the psalm goes on, David rejoicing in God's love and God's care. He's delighted with with his relationship with God again. But see, as long as David kept quiet, as long as he kept trying to hide, he was miserable. He was frustrated. He was wasting away. You see, freedom is found in honesty, facing who we are, what we're really like, and then enjoying the release, enjoying enjoying the, the freedom of forgiveness. Why do we cling to the misery of denial? You see, God already knows what's inside of you. He's known it all along, and He still loves you. David also asked to be held back from presumptuous sins. Those are sins that we all do. Sins that we uh, intentionally do. Attitudes we hold on to knowing flat out they're wrong. Things that we do knowing that they're wrong. But unable to weed them out of our lives. Sins that we fail to over and over and over again. We all have them. We're all dealing with them. I find it almost comical how in a room like this that uh, everyone is sitting there looking around saying, look at all these people who have their act together. If they only knew what I did. If they only knew what I was like. And then we shudder. Well, realize, people, that the guy next to you is looking at you when he's thinking that. And you start to catch the absurdity of that thought. And he's looking at me when he's thinking that. And I start to realize that's a silly thing for any of us to think because we all struggle with sin, intentional sin in our lives, things we do, things we lose to over and over and over again. But again, it's God's desire to root those out. Because see, those things are, like David says, they rule over us. They begin to dominate us, to take over our thinking and our energy. And and, and they, they leave us spiritually insensitive. And often we become bitter, defensive. God wants to hold us back. We realize we can't hold ourselves back. So we say, God, you can and you will. Please do it. Jesus, or, or uh, 
John said, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse out all of the garbage, all of the unrighteousness, all of the woundedness and insecurity that produce those sins. Now we may need to keep coming back over and over, asking forgiveness for the same thing over and over. But realize you are forgiven. And God takes us through that process for one, so that we can learn some things about ourselves, about our own feelings, about, about how and why we act the way we do. But more wonderfully, more importantly, He does that so that we can see what are the heights and the widths and the depths, how inexhaustible His grace is, how much He really loves us. Well, finally, David ends with a request that we could use to start each of our days. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, David not only takes the defensive, he not only realizes that he can't hold himself back, and so he says, God, hold me back. But David also takes the offensive. He asks for something positive. He realizes that in the mind, in the heart, is where the struggle really takes place. And that it's those, those, those uh, insecurities, it's those, those resentments that are swirling around in our hearts. It's the, the rehearsal of the injuries we've suffered. It's the criticalness that just plays like a broken record over and over. It's those lusts that jump to our attention whenever our minds aren't occupied on other things. These things just wait to erupt into sin at the slightest provocation. And David realizes that. And he says, God, take that stuff out and replace it with things that are acceptable to you, with, 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 with a consideration of just your beautiful and wonderful creation, a praise of you for all that you've done. Replace it with your word. David also writes elsewhere, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. See, when that word is feeding us and working its way into us, it, it, it keeps us back from sinning. It replaces all that's going on inside with things that will, that will just cause us to grow and to increase in our health. Now I think about this request that David makes, and I, I kind of think this is an awfully tall order. I mean, God can create the sun and the stars, but to really change the way I think when I'm just relaxed, when I'm kicked back and thinking about nothing else, to really change what goes on in my heart, that seems like an awful lot to ask. seems like too much work. But really, I have to remember just who this God is that we serve. He is immense. He is the God who threw the stars into space. He is the great Creator. And there's nothing too difficult for Him. And again, as He does this, as He changes our thinking, we no longer walk through this world blindly. Creation opens up to us, and we see there the glory of God, and we marvel at it, and we praise Him. And the Scriptures open up to us. And again, we see the heart of God. We see His love for us. We see what He's done for us. And our hearts are drawn to worship and to praise Him. That the words of my mouth... And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray.